Thank you for that. Thank you for indulging me there for just a minute. Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 5. We're still marching through Matthew as we're going through the study on the Sermon on the Mount. We find ourselves in a pretty tough passage today. Um, it's a one I'm excited to preach on, but I mean, everyone in here, you entered this room, really you entered this world, you really think about it, with a sense of justice. A sense of justice, meaning you weren't taught what justice is. You were born with this ability to look at something that was not right and say, that's not right. That's not how that ought to be, right? And although we all walked in here with that internal sense of justice, we have it to varying degrees. My wife, she has a deeper sense of justice than I do, right? I mean, I have it, but hers is much more mature than mine. She has a very high sense of what is and is not right. I think it's a gift of God on her, by the way. I mean, Hers is much more advanced and sensitive to my sense of justice. She has this ability to look at the landscape of a moment or a city and point to say something and say, it ought to be better than that. Like, that's just not right. I know what right looks like, and that is not it. And I think it's a, it's a gift. Like I said, it's been very helpful. Anytime you can see a, an inequity or a corruption or something that is hurt or dented, the dignity of people, and notice that immediately. I think sometimes that's a very big gift. That's why Some of you in this room, you have the same gift as she does. You're able to look around and see what ought to be and see what is not and know the difference. And I think that's a gift of God on you to be stricken and bothered by unfairness. Right? I mean, gifted or not, gifted or not, we all have this inner trigger whenever we see injustice or inequity and that trigger turns into Anger. We can be angry when we see inequity. Anger is the typical reaction to injustice. Sometimes that anger will materialize into a movement, something like the civil rights movement, right? It came from a source of anger, let's say a redemptive anger. I'd say the Reformation would be up there as well. So sometimes it is redemptive in nature, it's constructive, and sometimes it's, it destroys, it comes apart, it turns very toxic, right? Maybe it's a social media post that is birthed out of a tantrum that comes from anger because you feel like someone has dented your dignity. Someone has taken a shot at you. Either way, anger is our response to an assault. So the difference between me and my wife, when my wife, she looks out and she sees people disrespected or people marginalized, it will evoke anger in her, right? For me, if the referee forgets how to be a referee, <laughs> it evokes anger in me. So whether it's significant or it is insignificant, the key thing that we need to know at this point is that anger is our response to an assault. An assault, right? We've actually had a couple sermons already in the last few months focusing on passages that deal with anger. In fact, we had one just a couple weeks ago, and one of the things we looked at is that God actually, in his brilliance, engineered anger. Engineered it. His idea, this thing called anger. He designed it to energize our hunger and our passion to destroy sin. And I know that sounds odd, just at the get-go, right? But like we said, anger can be redemptive. It could be Jesus-shaped. And at the very same time, the very same anger can be vengeful and vindictive. It just depends on the object of the anger, right? So whenever we're angry, the big question we really need to ask is, who is suffering the injustice right now in this moment? And why am I so mad about it? Why am I so angry about this? Sometimes the healthiest church is an angry church. Sometimes, right? 
We see the dignity of people destroyed. We have a right to be angry. We are angry. This anger should press us into action, right? Sometimes this anger makes you angrier than everyone around you. You've noticed that, haven't you? When you're angry and you wonder if you're all alone, you look around and no one is as angry as you are. Why is no one else as angry as I am about this? That's because, friend, listen, that's a conviction for you, or at least a piece of your conviction. If you look around and everybody else seems to be kind of-ish angry on something that you are furious about, that is likely a mark of God on your life to take a step forward and lead in that. It's not, not to wait for somebody else to do it so you can jump behind them, but for you to do it, for you to step out and for you to lead that. You have to start moving. You're the church every bit as much as anyone else. Now, that's what it could look like when it's redemptive. Anger, however, can grow toxic. And that usually is seen whenever we find ourselves retaliating. Retaliating, okay? We feel blocked. We feel blocked from getting what we want or we're forced to wait for it. And it's not really God's image in other people that's suffering corruption and injustice. It's us. It's the momentum that we have towards what we really want in life. And that momentum is being slowed or it's being stopped. So let's look at this passage in Matthew 5. It's going to be in verse 38. We're going to read um, through verse 48. This is a really, really great word for us. It's going to show us Christ much more clearly, I believe, as well. So this is the word of the Lord for us. This is Jesus speaking to a congregation in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall not, or you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than, your, than others. Do not even Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay. Ever since the fall in the garden, our cosmos would have inequity in it, injustice. There would be injustice. There would be corruption and chaos that would come. Because in the garden, everything was right. But then they became not right really fast. And so now, even today, we're able to look around in our broken garden and say, not right. That is not right. That is not right. That is not how it ought to be. And sometimes what it will do is it will produce an anger in us. And when that not right is in our own lives, that anger can turn into retaliation. And retaliation isn't something that we were taught. It's just something that we knew how to do. Kind of like anger, right? No one taught you how to be angry. You just knew how to be angry. No one taught you how to retaliate. You just knew how to retaliate. You knew it as a kid. Someone took your toy, you bit them, right? Pulled your hair, you pinched them. You didn't get that in a book, did you? Didn't learn that in school. We very naturally retaliate against those who offend our sense of justice. Here's proof. Just go to YouTube later on and put in the search bar, break check. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to watch motorists that are so furious that they will actually speed around you, pull in front of you real, real tight, real close, and then slam on the brakes. Right, catch us now. 
to get you to hit the back of them, or if you're quick enough to spin it into a ditch. That's their way of sticking it to you. Brake check, right? I had a friend in college, a roommate in college that did these brake checks all the time, and I thought, what are you doing? I mean, you understand the whole goal of that is for someone to hit your car, right? I mean, for someone to hit your car, like that's how you're sticking it to them, but what, what people do when they brake check is they are so furious that shouting through a window does not work anymore. They have to do something. Whenever they brake check, it is them saying, you did me wrong, you were unjust, and I will retaliate in the most ruthless way I could think of, and that is to speed in front of you and hit the brakes, right? It's fascinating to me. Here's the sports version of it. If you're a baseball fan, it's charging the mound or plunking a player, which is another fascinating thing. For Some of you are like, baseball, what's baseball, right? I know we're in the South, baseball is a sport, and I'll explain what it is here in a moment, but one of the reasons I love baseball is it's a sport that referees itself, right? It's jungle justice, it is street justice, it's simple. It's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Sometimes, if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, to get a point across, a pitcher will throw a pitch anywhere except where they're supposed to, right? Like over the plate or just hugging the plate. They will actually aim said pitch straight for the batter. It's called plunking the batter. And they will put that person on the ground if they can. Now, of course, that person's going to get a free base. They get to go to first base for free. But they're also limping. They try not to. They try to look cool. They're really limping, and they're hurting pretty bad, right? Sometimes it hits them in the head, sometimes in the arm, sometimes in the butt. It hits them. It's the break check of sports. But the favor will be returned. It might happen in the next inning. It might happen in the next year. I've seen them go years before they get payback, right? The thinking is, is you hit my third baseman, I'm going to hit your third baseman. Two wrongs do make a right, right? And what happens is the composed batter, once they've been plunked, they kind of trot out the first base. Others that are not so composed, they blow a fuse and they charge the mound, right? And all the bench is clear. It's funny, I was talking a little bit last, night to, or last week to Kimmy Peterman. You don't know this about her, by the way. She's like one of the best in the country at softball. I mean, she is like a phenom in the college. So I asked her, I said, did anyone ever plunk you? She goes, yeah, you know, a few times. Listen to me. This is what that means. Those softballs are like small grapefruits, and they can get up to 80 miles an hour. It's like firing something out of a, a potato gun at her, right? Did you ever charge the mound? You charged the mound, didn't you? Come on. I'd pay money to get video of you charging the mound. These examples sound so childish, don't they? Throwing a ball at somebody. Speeding in front and slamming on the brakes. But what it is, is it's saying, I have had something taken from me. It's someone saying, I've had something taken from me. And there's an injustice. And I won't feel like justice is right until I've returned fire. It's toxic anger. But how is it to get peace whenever we retaliate? It's impossible. Peace doesn't come from retaliation. More retaliation comes from retaliation. It's impossible to get to peace, right? So what Jesus is teaching us here in this passage, it's hard. Not calculus hard, by the way. It's just hard, hard against every fiber of our being. Everything that makes us up revolts whenever we hear Jesus speak about this. That is the nature of the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if you've been following over the last few weeks, what he is doing is he's reconstructing everyday living, Everyday living is being turned on its head. It, it takes us all the way down to the source code level, and it reformats us as a people. And what he says about retaliation and revenge, it grinds against everything that we came out of the womb with. Just like lust 
and anger and oaths and promises in marriage. This would not only be hard, but it would be time-consuming, right? I remember I was thinking about this during the week, and I called an old friend because whenever I was a senior in high school, I might have been in between high school and college, my dad had hired me and my buddy to demo a deck he had in the backyard, this big, giant old deck. He wanted to put a new one in. And I just kind of stood there with my hands on my hip and acted like I knew what I was looking at. And I thought, yeah, that sounds like good, easy, quick money. It wasn't quick. It wasn't easy, right? I mean, we got started on that. We thought it was so brilliant. We thought we'd be done in a few hours demoing that and carrying it out of there. It took us like two weeks to do that stupid thing. And it was 117. That is not an exaggeration. It was 100. It was triple digits every single day that we worked out there. We broke hammers. We broke sledges. I found out how far down a concrete footer can actually go. It can go quite a ways, it turns out. It's very difficult to get concrete out of the ground. Several trips to the dump. My dad the whole time knew exactly what he was doing, standing in the window, watching us with an iced tea, drinking it. And then as soon as we were done, the pros came in and laid the deck down. They did it in like a day, two of them, you know, and it looked perfect and it looked beautiful. Now, looking at that new porch, you could not imagine all the toil that went into getting that thing ready. You couldn't imagine it, right? And this is how it is to change as a person. Hard, painful, and slow. Part deconstruction and part construction. Part tearing up everything that used to make us who we were and part installing and building something that is new. That is what the Sermon on the Mount is showing us. And a life of righteous anger without toxic retaliation, but a life of righteous anger means deconstructing what we knew and putting in new theology. It means building something different in us. I mean, look at verse 38. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I like that system. I don't know about you. That's a pretty simple system. I can get into that, right? It's not a bad setup. Think about what it does. It removes privilege. No more pecking orders. Gets the job done. It's very baseball. And it's justice, right? Third baseman for third baseman. Not much wiggle room for grace or mercy. I like it. Jesus is going to demo this out of us. He's going to construct something new. So look at verse 39 and hear it again. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All right? So none of that is normal. None of that even seems possible. How, how does somebody do that? How does somebody want to do that? Right? I mean, it's easy to take a tooth for a tooth. That's easy, right? It's easy to, to go uh, foot for foot. It's easy, it's easy to trade blows, to trade hate for hate. You hate me? Well, good, I hate you. I didn't even have a reason to hate you. I didn't even know that you hated me. But now that I know that you hate me, I hate you back, and that's all I needed, right? See how easy that is? We do it all the time. It's easy. Jesus says, whenever someone hits you, don't hit them back. Turn the other cheek. But what does that even mean? I mean, can we be honest for a moment? What does that mean, to turn the cheek? Should you always turn the cheek? I mean, this passage has been a problem for people. 
right? It's caused problems. Maybe we should look at it for just a second. Because I, I believe, friends, there is a time to not yield the other cheek. And I know that this can sound confusing for a minute. But imagine a protest. And a protester hitting an officer. It would be wrong for that officer to turn the cheek. Or if a teenager were to be rebellious and strike a parent, it would be wrong in that moment for the parent to turn the other cheek. Or if someone came to hurt your family, it would be wrong. I mean, self-defense is a big one, right? Self-defense is not revenge. Revenge is not self-defense, but those two are conflated all the time, and you'll have people read a passage like this, and they'll say that it means you should never defend yourself or defend others. That's where Gandhi landed. That's why Gandhi said some of the things that he said that were so controversial. Whenever the Germans were taking Jews by force, he said, they should, they should just let it happen. They should let the Germans come in. I mean, if they really, really, really believed in this, they would just kind of everybody lay everything down and just let injustice march all over them, right? But Luke, I hear people say sometimes when I'm talking about something like this, didn't Jesus defend him, not defend himself? Jesus didn't defend himself even to the cross. And it's true. But nobody took his life either. He gave it up. He didn't have to defend himself. He says as much in John 10. He says, no one takes my life. I give it freely. I give it freely. When you see civil injustice, think of the slave trade back in the 1700s or the civil rights in the end of the 1950s or the sex trade today or abortion today. You don't turn the other cheek. You don't keep handing babies over. You don't keep creating space for more injustice. You don't keep making room for terror to march through. The point of this passage is not to take a beating and let injustice roll. The, the point of this passage is not to get even, not to be vindictive and vengeful. That's the point. It's to not have the posture and the spirit of one who wants to collect revenge over time. That's why the Bible says be angry. Don't sin in it. Don't sin in the anger. Don't be vindictive. Look at verse 43. Verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Then if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, that's hard, isn't it? Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And he would not just teach this, but he would go on to illustrate it with his very own life later on, wouldn't he? He would illustrate his very own sermon with his own life. The main idea of what Christ is saying is those who persecute you are not to feel your vindictive anger and rage. They are to feel your love in whatever form that love takes. And it'll take different forms. Loving those who love you is easy. Greeting an enemy as a friend, that requires gospel change in the heart. That requires something different in the heart. And how is this working for you, by the way? Right? I mean, I want to charge the mound often. <laughs> I want to charge it often. This is what Paul says to the Roman church in Romans 12. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. And that little phrase at the end there he got from Proverbs 25, that's an Old Testament little statement that he remixed into his own sermon. And aren't we subtle in how we collect revenge sometimes? For instance, don't we sometimes just hope that God destroys them? We hope that they get theirs. We hope that they finally feel just the burning rage of God, not for their good, of course, but for our good, for our satisfaction. We might feed them, we might give them water, but really we're just trying to heap as many hot coals on their head as we possibly can get away with, right? And that is a form of revenge sometimes. I mean, can we just look into that passage for a moment? Another one that escapes us pretty easily, heaping coals on somebody's head. (laughs) Have some of you ever read that and thought, what does that mean? Like how many scholars have something to say about that? You know, what on earth? And this is how we've typically translated that in the church out in the West. We typically translate that as, if you really want to stick it to your enemy, treat them nice. Then you'll really get them, right? I mean, if you really want to lay into your enemy, if you really want to hurt them where it hurts, you stick that dagger and twist it, then give them stuff. And then you'll get them. (laughs) But that has revenge in mind. That doesn't have grace and peace in mind. So that's a wrong translation, right? And then others will try to kind of bend and lean around this passage. And they'll quote this old tradition where um, people would need sometimes to relocate coals from a hot fire to their dead fire in their house. And so the going or the the saying would go, if you really want to uh, maybe... uh, work with an enemy. You could give them food, you can give them water, and then apparently you can give them coals, and they carry it on their head back to their own place, and they put it in their fire, and it's a blessing to them, right? That's a high, there's no evidence anywhere that that was ever a tradition, though. It's very high in speculation, right? And I'm just going to say it, there are better ways to carry coals, right, than on your dome, like this maybe, or dragging it on something. Here's a more likely interpretation, and then you can do what you want with it. When you serve and care for those who hate you, you are putting them in a place of responding to you. They have to respond, because what you're doing is contra what they're used to receiving, right? And sometimes, friends, that response is going to be more hate. How would you respond if someone put hot coals on your head? Violently? Aggressively? You see, burning coals in the Old Testament was actually a symbol of God's pending judgment, okay? God's pending judgment. So if the hater's heart is not softened by your benevolence, if they don't see this gospel example and you giving something to an enemy that doesn't deserve it, if their heart is not softened, then all they're doing is storing up more judgment for themselves, more coals, right? Or maybe, or maybe, well, I mean, You've seen this with your life. Being kind to somebody, it just exposes for them that there's a problem with them. And nobody wants to feel that kind of conviction. That's that's a hard place to be. They'll feel a conviction, and if they don't repent, you can expect anger instead. You've seen this. This is why sometimes you've had an enemy or someone who's hated you, and you've treated them kindly. You've put them in a hard place. They, They feel like a moron for how they treated you. So they can either repent with a soft heart or they're going to double down and treat you with twice as much hate. This is what we see. Or maybe you see the opposite and you see peace visit the situation. Maybe this hating experience 
shows the hater the same grace that you received from the Lord. You see, there's an opportunity for peace, but none of that will happen if the strategy is revenge. That's why God says never avenge yourself. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Don't avenge yourself. So you want to remember when you're reading this that Jesus is focused on how our hearts function, how our hearts function, even above how we behave, but how our, our hearts function now that they're new. That's why he starts off the whole sermon with, you didn't even used to be a people, and now you're a people, right? You didn't used to have new hearts. Now you have a new heart. You used to be in the dark. Now you're in the light. And he says we're a distinct people to stand out, to be seen, to not be hidden. A city on a hill cannot be escaped by anyone. Everyone sees it, right? We're to be distinct. We're to be salt that permeate and preserve a spoiling culture around us. We're to be light in the middle of a room that reveals the light of God in a place where they can finally see all the dark edges and corners, nooks and crannies. We're to just stand out on full display as a people that enjoy Jesus and show how that has transformed us, how the gospel has changed us. So Christ is not saying here to do not be angry. He's not saying stop with your anger. He's saying stop retaliating in your anger. Stop retaliating, even if they deserve it. And they deserve it, don't they? Don't they deserve just a big break check? Don't they deserve that? But again, we're a people who don't get what we deserve. And that's the gospel core. We're people that didn't get what we deserved. We got what we did not deserve. How you handle your haters, it shows the gospel of a favor-giving God. A favor-giving God who saw us as a people who were throwing rocks at him when he found us and loved us. Listen, he didn't, this is the thing about the gospel. He found you as a hater. God did, right? So it's not like you were throwing rocks at God, metaphorically, and then you just put them down and you vowed to clean your life up. And he says, okay, well, as long as you put those rocks down and you're done throwing them, then maybe we can have a friendship. Maybe we could have an intimacy. No, no, he caught you in your wind-up. He caught you rearing back. He caught you throwing rocks as an enemy, as a rebel, and that's when he loved you. That's when he loved you. He says it in Romans 5. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Still rock throwers. While we were enemies, he visits us with love instead of revenge. Revenge is what we deserved. Grace is what we got. So in his image, we are handcrafted also to show love in place of revenge and retaliation. So you're free in your anger. You're free from needing to vindicate yourself. You're free from having to take revenge. I know how you grew up. It's the same way I grew up. We all kind of know that two wrongs don't make a right. It's hard to convince us of that when we're angry, though, right? It actually feels like that second wrong will make everything right. Everything. In our old life, we would retaliate whenever we found like our heaven on earth was being taken from us, stolen from us, whenever our dignity was taking a ding. Now the gospel truth for you and for me is that Jesus took this jagged edge of punishment to make justice right so that we are free now to do the same. So what do we do then when someone does ding us? What do we do with all that anger? 
What does it mean to turn the cheek? How do we know when we should turn the cheek, right? What is the answer? I'm going to just go through maybe a progression that has helped me in the past, and I think it might be helpful for some of you, especially if you struggle with anger. One is just to stop and be still and consider your rage. Just stop and consider it. What do you really want to happen? Why do you want that to happen? Why? Whose glory has been offended? What has been taken from you? What would make you feel peace? Are you hungry for their destruction or for their salvation? These are things that you should consider, that you should think about, right? Listen, I can name a pretty long list of celebrities and politician, politicians, and, and you would know them, and they just they tick me off. I read about stuff they say, I see things that they do, and it just makes me angry, angry. And I'm tempted to say, oh, yeah? Well, you'll get yours. You'll get yours. Oh, you'll find out. You'll find out, right? I find myself tempted away from wanting their peace, away from wanting their salvation, and tempted a little bit more to just want their destruction. And that's what vindictive anger can look like, even in seed form. Even in seed form. It's toxic. Where I should be hoping, weeping, praying for their repentance, I'm seething and I'm hoping for their destruction. Right? Considering our anger also reveals where we're actually angry, not as much with them as we are with God, as we are with the Lord. I mean, he's making us wait, isn't he? He's exposing us in that, making us wait. Makes us feel out of control, makes us feel disrespected. And it compels us to either trust the Lord or to turn against him and just have vigilante justice on our own, right? Psalm 37 the psalmist says this. He says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Boy, but this is hard in our anger, isn't it? It's hard to sit in our rage and let it lash us like a storm, soaking in our hope and our desire to retaliate and to destroy. So he uses words like fret not, refrain, wait patiently. So stop, be still, and consider your rage. And, and probably the next baby step is to consider the counsel around you. Consider the counsel around you, right? Often we don't see very clearly when we're angry. I don't. I don't see clearly at all. It's like seeing through mud whenever I'm angry, right? Often we don't even see our own sin whenever we're angry. We need help. So do you have people around you? Do you have people around you that, that, that are free enough to say, yeah, I can see why you're angry, but I can see you being a clown too. Yeah, I see why that would make you pretty enraged, but there's a little bit of a plank in your eye. Can we talk about that? Or yeah, that's a situation where you need to turn the other cheek. That's a situation where you don't give them any more room. Do you have somebody that can help you with that? I think the most dangerous angry person is the lonely angry person. They become the most vindictive. Seriously, I want you to think back to the last time that you did something real stupid in your anger. Do you have a lot of guidance in that moment? Right? Probably not. When you got even on social media, do you have a lot of help around you? When you put your fist through the wall, did you 
have a lot of, a lot of smart, wise voices helping you into that? No, probably not. <laughs> probably not. Some of you, you did. Some of you, you need to get better friends. The win is not counsel. The win is good counsel. I know you grew up with them, and I know Oprah feels like a friend, but can we be honest? If they're not drawing their wisdom and their guidance from the word of God, it's not gonna be helpful for you. I don't care if they're quick to pick up the phone. I don't care if you knew them since middle school. If they're not drawing from the word of God, you're not gonna get good counsel. Not all counsel is good. Counsel is not the win. Godly counsel is the win, okay? So consider that. Because community helps us discern our motives. Disciples of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, his church, they should be willing to suffer personal injustices. They should be willing to do that. But turning a cheek is not always the most loving thing to do. Not always. In a set of informed eyes, a wise voice can be very helpful for an angry person that's having a hard time seeing in their anger. And one of the things we said a lot in our early years as a church, one thing that Kevin said often is our growth, personally, is a community project. We talked about it in our partnership class this morning. Our growth is a community project. So anger and retaliation, that fits firmly within this category. Because you're going to struggle with, how do I handle hate in the workplace? What about when your kids are bullied in school? How do you deal with that? What about when you're bullied on social media? That happens, right? Friends with addictions that turn on you. Persecution from people that don't like you. How can you respond and not react? Because there's a difference, right? There's a difference. Reacting looks like revenge. A lot of times response, when it's calculated and thought through, can look like love. And sometimes no is the most loving thing you can do. Right? So you consider your rage. You stop and you consider your rage. Then you consider your counsel. And then I think probably the most important thing is we consider the Lord's remedy for us. Whenever we're confused and hurt and angry and mad, consider what the Lord did to remedy injustice. To take this garden that was right and became so wrong and turn it on its head. To turn it by his work for you and me. And that would orbit around a sacrifice. It would be blood that would cover our hate. It would be blood. What God did on the cross, not vindictive. It was loving. It was loving you. And Jesus looked towards the cross with a hope and a joy because he knew it would satisfy God's justice. The equation was balanced on the cross. That's when justice was perfected. So our anger, when we feel that anger and that wrath and that rage, it's really the soil of a good gospel moment, right? And when healthy, it can drive us into action for the good of people. When it's toxic, it looks like vigilante justice. So in your anger, I want you to consider how angry God is with you. He's not. He's not angry with you anymore, is he? No, no boot's going to drop. He's not going to plunk you from the mound. It's not going to happen. No burning rage left. He emptied it on the cross for you. The wrath was empty. So what I'd love to do is, this is going to be a little different as well, and I'm not going to make you stand up or get in circles or anything like that, but I'd like to do is pray for our enemies, just as a church for a moment. Pray for our enemies. You can join me in this or you can fake it, but then you'll have to ask yourself some real hard questions later. Either way, 
whenever we take communion during the worship, what you need to know is whenever you see the bread and the juice there, you need to realize that table with the elements. It is a symbolic reminder of how God was not vindictive, how he did not take revenge whenever we deserved it, how we are a people that don't get what we deserve, and we are people that get what we don't deserve. But why prayer? Why does Jesus say prayer in this, and why is that how we're leaving this, this moment? Because prayer is interesting. You know, you can give food and water to an enemy and not love them. You can give food and water to an enemy and not really want good things for them. You can do it just because it's the right thing to do. You could do it because Luke said so, because it's in the Bible. You could do it because everyone else is doing it, right? But prayer for your enemies is deep love, meaning you're going to want something good for them. You're going to want the best for them. It's interceding on their behalf. Maybe for their conversion. Maybe for their repentance. It may be that the sin that they're in stops destroying them. It might be that they would be awakened to all the hate in their heart. But this is the prayer that Jesus has in mind. I mean, and we actually see him doing it from the cross. Forgive them, Father. He's interceding for enemies, for they don't know what they're doing. And somebody heard him because not too long after that, Stephen does the same thing. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. Don't hold this sin against them. So Christ is not just calling us to do good things for our enemy, but to want their best. To want their best, which can be harder. It can be harder. And to express those wants in prayer, earnest prayer. Our hearts should want their salvation. They should want it should want their presence in heaven, should want their eternal happiness. It's hard, though. I'll tell you what, go ahead and stand with me, and let's, let's do this. Let's pray for our enemies. I'm going to lead you. I don't know the people you have in mind. You do. You have their face in your, your mind. You probably think about them a lot. You probably check up on them on Facebook from time to time to see if they've gotten theirs yet, Right? You probably have given them the silent treatment. Maybe you've been passive. Maybe you've been aggressive. We're going to pray just for a moment. We're going to pray for their best. Okay? So, Father, we thank you for being sweet to us because you wanted our best for us. And you did not take revenge on us, and we deserved it. We are rock throwers. We are vandals. We deserved everything that we could have. I mean, we could have. We deserved the worst. And you give us the best. You give us what we don't deserve. You did not give us what we do deserve. You're not vengeful against your people. You're not vengeful against your family. You don't take revenge. You're not waiting to, to stomp on us when we make a mistake. And this is the kind of people you've created, a people that have been, that have been free from revenge. And so now, God, you've called us as a church to move forward, to want the best for people, to love, where our posture is naturally given to turning the other cheek. Our posture is naturally given to, to having grace in mind, not revenge, not vindication. You say that belongs to you. And Lord, we trust you as God, we trust that you know how vengeance will be doled out and where it won't be doled out. We trust that you are a better judge than we are. And so, Father, we just keep some people in our mind right now. And we're going to pray for them. Lord, that you would seek them out this morning, whether they're in this room or out of this room or even out of this state. 
Father, people that have meant us harm. Lord, people that have hurt us. People that have just been mean and angry have caused us problems. Lord, we pray that you would change their heart. That you would rescue them and that they would enjoy you. That they would enjoy you. That they would not get what we think they deserve. Lord, but they would actually taste of your grace. They would enjoy this life with you. That they would see your gospel and be satisfied in it. And that they would glorify you with all of their lives because they're so content and satisfied with what you've done for them. Lord, we pray for them. And if we don't mean it, Lord, help us mean it. I know it's easy to pray a prayer like this with half of us meaning it and the other half not really caring if they see peace or not. But Lord, by the power of your spirit, you can change our hearts where we truly want peace for our enemies. And Lord, help us whenever we want to retaliate in our anger. When we become so angry, retaliation is all we see. We're so overcome with fury, we can't see any other way out. Help us stop and be still and really look at the motives that are behind the motives that are behind the motives. Help us, Father. Some of us need better voices in our life. They don't come for free. They're hard sometimes to develop a, a, just a, a cadre of wisdom around us that can say, you are wrong or you are right or you have sin. Lord, help us with that. And then remind us, Father, even as we take communion, as we sing, as we write checks, as we serve each other, as we high-five each other, as we go to lunch, Lord, as we worship you in all the various ways that we worship, Lord, that you remind us and make very real for us what you have done to ultimately solve retaliation. What you've done to solve toxic anger. That there is a place that you're making for your people, and we will be there, and there will be no anger that is toxic ever again. There'll be no injustice. There'll be no inequity. No corruption anymore. But now, and this time in this place, we can image that to the best of our ability and show a world a picture of what heaven can look like. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you. We treasure you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So... There they are.